This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a niche of normality in a nasty, nasty, nasty world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I was supposed to be on vacation this week. We we're going to have Dr. Anthony Fauci guest host, but he couldn't make it something about having to figure out how to get preschoolers to triple mask in daycares these days. Yeah, or figure out how to give us vaccinations daily. Oh, just about. Anyway, I'm Nurse Amy. My real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner, or you can just say a nurse practitioner. And I'm a certified nurse midwife. That's right. Not to mention the hostess with the mostess. She's so tough. When she tap dances, they have to repair the sidewalks. <laughs> That's right. On this show, you're going to get the conventional wisdom. You're going to get the unconventional wisdom. You're going to get whatever kind of wisdom it takes for your family to get medically prepared for the uncertain future. But before we start, listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Listen, don't listen. We don't care. Yep, we do care. We do. But <laughs> what happens in a disaster when you find out the ambulance is heading away from the hospital? If the pros can't get to where people need help, and can't get to the medical facilities, well, you know what? You, if you're there, you're the highest medical asset, so you might as well do something if you're going to save a life. You better get moving. Before we get started, a quick mention about the greatly expanded, brand new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. So much so, in terms of expansion, that the book itself is physically larger, contains many new topics, more in-depth information on old ones, and more than double, probably triple, I think, the illustrations. The black and white version is now available on Amazon for immediate delivery and at store.doomandbloom.net if you want a signed copy. The limited edition color version will be here around the end of the month. That's available now for pre-order, right? Yes. Okay. Um, it's going to be shipped on September 22nd, and it's supposed to take four to five days for shipping. So I'm figuring we'll be able to start shipping things out, fingers crossed, 26th, 27th, 28th, right. end of September, and then we'll just be... Putting them out as fast as possible. Sounds good to me. <laughs> in the news, U.S. forces shot down a pair of Iranian drones that attacked the main airport in northern Iraq late on the 20th anniversary of September 11th. The U.S. counterstrike with rocket artillery and mortar system CRAM, they call it. Uh, that's a system that is able to engage these bomb-laden drones, which were made in Iran, according to U.S. officials. The airport, where some U.S. troops are indeed based, has come under a series of attacks this year by Iranian-backed militia forces. If you've read the headline, some in Israel believe that Iran now has what it needs to make nuclear weapons and that Iran's stockpile of weapons-grade aluminum, aluminum, uranium, <laughs> aluminum if, allows them to make lots of tin cans. If they made them out of aluminum, <laughs> I would be very happy, honey. All right. Has quadrupled they are, their amount of Weapons-grade uranium has quadrupled since May, so are these attacks tests of their ability to deliver some of these weapons? I hope not. Uh, but it could easily be. For you, medic, it means that you should know about nuclear events and, indeed, the physical damage that's associated with them. Short of an asteroid hitting Earth or an ultra-deadly pandemic disease, I mean more deadly than COVID-19, 
No disaster has the potential to destroy society as much as a nuclear war. Even minor radiation accidents, such as reactor meltdowns, may cause long-standing damage to whole areas. The medic has always got to have a plan of action for every type of disaster to increase the chances of survival for his or her group members. Also, it has to think about is Chernobyl. Right. They still can't inhabit that area for hundreds or thousands of years. Deers with 14 antlers and... Legs sticking out of the head. (laughs) Stuff like that. 14 eyes. Oh my gosh. Well, actually, I don't think that's true, but... I know. (laughs) They are actually radioactive. They do set off the Geiger counters. Crazy. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about nuclear weapons. The, The least destructive weapon that uses radioactive materials is really not a nuclear weapon. It's called the dirty bomb, and it's used by terrorists. A dirty bomb is not technically nuclear. It uses conventional explosives to disperse radioactive material into general area. You're not splitting the atom here. Usually the effect of the explosion itself causes more damage and casualties than the radioactive element. Now, our concept of an atomic bomb as developed by the Manhattan Project in the 1940s is one that uses nuclear fission. That's not nuclear fission, like a new way to go fission. No. It's nuclear fission. And the explosion in a nuclear atomic bomb is caused by a chain reaction that splits atomic nuclei. The result is a wave of intense heat, light, pressure, and kinetic energy that equals thousands of tons, also called kilotons, of TNT. This is followed by the release of radioactive particles in a cloud that resembles a mushroom, if it's a ground blast. Mixed with dirt and debris, the particles fall back to earth, contaminating crops, animals, people. This will happen at the site of detonation, which we call ground zero, but can also be blown elsewhere by the prevailing winds. Atomic bombs gave way to hydrogen bombs, which are best described as thermonuclear weapons due to the generation of such incredible extreme heat during the detonation. Hydrogen bombs use a process known as nuclear fusion, which takes two light nuclei and makes a heavier one using variations of hydrogen atoms called isotopes. This fusion process requires high temperatures and usually involves a fission reaction, like with a regular atomic bomb, to initiate the actual explosion. H-bombs don't just generate power in the kilotons, they can reach levels in the megatons, millions of tons of TNT. Another type of nuclear weapon, thermonuclear weapon, is the neutron bomb, which generates much less kinetic energy and thermal damage, but much, much, much more radiation. Enhanced radiation weapons like the neutron bomb generate a fusion reaction that allows neutrons to escape the weapon with only a limited blast. Originally developed by the United States to counter massive Soviet tank formations, the neutron bomb is an example of a tactical nuclear weapon. The effect is to leave infrastructure mostly intact while wiping out human targets due to the massive amounts of radiation. Which unfortunately sounds like it's not going to kill you right away. It's going to kill you over a few hours or days. Right. Or or maybe even weeks, depending on how close you were to the initial bomb. And we're going to be talking about that medic too, the physical effects on the human being. The impact of a nuclear bomb is related to its yield. That's a measure of the amount of energy produced. The Hiroshima atomic bomb, the first atomic bomb that was exploded on a populated city, had a yield of 15 kilotons, while the Tsar bomb, the king of all bombs, detonated by the Russians in 1961, had a yield of 51 megatons. That's 51,000 kilotons. So Hiroshima, 15 kilotons. The Tsar bomb, 51,000 kilotons. That's insane. 
Most of the weapons stockpiled in the U.S. and Russia consist of bombs in the about 100 to 500 kiloton range these days, much stronger than Hiroshima, but much weaker than the Tsar bomb. That's because they're meant to be fired at major cities in clusters rather than one large bomb, which could be easier to intercept than, let's say, 20 smaller ones. With these detonations, you can expect a generally circular pattern of local damage, but various factors come into play besides the yield of the weapon. The altitude of the explosion, the weather, wind conditions, nearby geologic features, they all play a role. The U.S. government estimates the distribution of damage for fission bombs to be the following. 50% shockwave, kinetic energy, 35% heat, thermal energy, about 5% initial blast radiation, and then 10% dispersed radiation, which is also called fallout. Now, you might not think there's anything you can do to survive a nuclear attack, and if you're really at ground zero at the moment of detonation, you know what? You're right. But your chances of survival given time, distance, and protection may be better than you think. The atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945 flattened buildings over a roughly four-square-mile area, killed 60,000 people instantly, with another 90,000 to 140,000 succumbing later to injuries and radiation exposure. Although this represents a total of huge total of 150,000 to 200,000 fatalities, the entire population didn't die. At the time of the explosion, there were about 350,000 people in Hiroshima. Indeed, a Japanese citizen named Tsutsomo Yamaguchi actually was at the sites of both the Hiroshima explosion and the Nagasaki explosion days later on the days that they were bombed. This guy survived both and he reached the age of 93. This shows that although horrific in its effects, distance from ground zero and other factors besides just the power of the bomb itself play a role in a nuclear weapons lethality. A 50 megaton H-bomb like the Russian Tsar bomb would cause a much larger circle of devastation than four square miles, probably have widespread fatalities at least 20 miles from ground zero, third degree burns probably 50 miles away. Indeed, in 1961, when the Tsar bomb was exploded, windows were reported shattered as far away as Norway and Finland. Wow. <laughs> Let's talk about radiation exposure. It's important for us to talk about what it does to humans. Right. The quick definition of radiation is energy given off by unstable matter in the form of rays or high-speed particles. All matter is composed of atoms, right? Atoms are made up of various parts. The central nucleus contains these minute particles called proteins and neutrons. Protons. what I call them? Proteins. Oh! <laughs> Boy, alumin aluminum instead of uranium, <laughs> proteins instead of protons. Protons and neutrons. I didn't, didn't say new, no, you didn't. new trees no, you or didn't. something. No, you didn't. No, you said that one perfectly. <laughs> the atom's outer shell contains other particles called electrons. And the nucleus has a positive electrical charge. Electrons have a negative electrical charge. And neutrons are, well, neutral. These work together to form a stable balance by throwing off excess energy. And the energy, that energy, the emission of that energy is what we call radiation. Radiation is divided into ionizing and non-ionizing. Daily, we are bombarded by radiation from multiple non-ionizing sources. In other words, the sun, sun. <laughs> visible light and heat, microwaves, radio waves, radar, and others. This type of radiation deposits energy in the materials through which it passes, but it does not break molecular bonds or destabilize atoms. Right, we don't fall apart because we go out in the sun. That's right. They look a little bit like they're falling apart. Well, they get skin cancer, most likely. That's right destabilization of atoms, breaking molecular bonds, they can be caused by ionizing radiation. 
Atoms become charged and unstable, and that's a very unhealthy state for living cells. There are several types of radiation given off by a nuclear weapon. Alpha, beta, and neutron particles, and also gamma rays and X-rays. Let's talk a little bit about each one of them. Alpha radiation. Alpha radiation occurs when an atom undergoes radioactive decay, giving off an alpha particle. Due to their charge and mass, alpha particles only travel a few centimeters and don't even penetrate the outer level of skin. That's the epidermis. If ingested, inhaled, or injected, however, alpha particles are capable of causing considerable damage to living cells. Then there's beta radiation. Beta radiation also takes the form of particles. Due to the smaller mass, it's able to travel further in air than an alpha particle, but it can be stopped by just a thick piece of plastic, maybe a ream of paper, or even clothing. It can penetrate a short distance into exposed skin, though, causing beta burns, which may require treatment. The main threat, however, from beta radiation is from ingesting contaminated food sources growing in, let's say, fallout areas. They had that problem in Japan. That's right. They had to check on the food sources to find out what the radiation levels were. Exactly. They even got into the fish. Yes. Remember? They were checking the fish. Let's talk about gamma rays and x-rays. Gamma and x-rays, unlike alpha and beta particles, are two types of radiation that don't consist of any particles at all. Indeed, they are pure electromagnetic energy. Think of gamma rays as x-rays on steroids. Gamma radiation can travel much farther through air than alpha or beta particles. It's responsible for most ill effects on humans after a nuclear explosion. Gamma rays can, however, be blocked by various materials. We're going to talk about that. The thickness required for each of these materials depends on the density. You'll see various shielding options described very, very soon. Example of elements that are gamma ray emitters include iodine-131, radioiodine, cesium-137, cobalt-60, radium-226, all sorts of different things, all of them highly dangerous. Neutron radiation. Neutron radiation consists of high-speed particles with high penetrating power. Neutron particles travel further in air than other forms of radiation, but can be blocked by materials that contain things like hydrogen, such as water and concrete. When neutron particles are absorbed into a stable atom, however, they make it unstable and much more likely to emit radiation. Therefore, it's the only type that we're talking about here that can turn other materials radioactive. Maybe you radioactive. Oh, no. (laughs) Now, although radiation is a major issue after a nuclear blast, it should be noted that most damage from such weapons are the results of massive amounts of energy generated just by shock and heat waves. The blast kills people close to ground zero and causes major trauma much farther away. Flying debris, falling buildings, they account for much more casualties as well. The heat's so intense that almost anything close to ground zero is vaporized. At a distance, the extreme heat can still cause really bad burns and even starts firestorms. What about nuclear reactor meltdowns? You might not expect a nuclear bomb to be dropped on your head in the near future, but do you live near a nuclear power plant? Our utilization of nuclear reactors for power places us at risk for radiation exposure when they malfunction or are damaged. Examples include the meltdowns at Chernobyl, as Amy mentioned, that was 1986, and Fukushima, much more recently in 2011. A meltdown, technically known as a core melt accident, happens when reactor heat increases beyond safe levels, causing a nuclear element to exceed its melting point. Meltdowns occur as a result of a nuclear plant coolant system failure in most cases. 
This failure can occur as a result of damage caused by natural disasters, such as the earthquakes and tidal waves that occurred in Fukushima 2011. They can also be caused by human error, as in Chernobyl, or they can be caused by terrorist attack. Regardless of the cause, the melted radioactive elements are released into the atmosphere, and this has serious implications for populations living both near and far from the event. Right. These things can still be carried. Right. Far, far on, away from where it happened. On the prevailing winds, thousands right. of miles, really. Radiation released into the atmosphere is known as fallout. Fallout is a particulate matter, dust, in other words, that is thrown into the air by a nuclear explosion. This dust can travel hundreds, if not thousands, of miles on the prevailing winds. The end results are fields, livestock, and people covered with radioactive material. The higher the fallout goes into the atmosphere, the farther it will travel downwind. This material contains elements that are hazardous if inhaled or ingested, like radioactive iodine, as I mentioned before, cesium, and strontium. Even worse, fallout is absorbed by the animals and plants that make up the food supply. Right, so even if you don't live near what happened, if you end up getting that food through the food chain, and it's not flagged as, hey, it came from a place where there is radioactive material, then you might not know that what you're eating has these things. Exactly. Exactly it's right. It's not you like could they be... have labels on, on fish and vegetables. Right. This is exa- I mean, it might say a country sometimes, but not always, and it certainly doesn't say the city or the right. county where it came from. Even if, let's say you had a herd of cows and the cows weren't even in the area where the radioactive materials fell... The cows are going to eat the grass, and the grass has radioactive materials, and it goes into the cows and makes the whole thing dangerous. And then what if they make cheese out of that milk, Right. but the cheese was made in a completely different country, and then so you look at the cheese label, and the cheese says France, but really the milk came from somewhere else. I mean, you just don't know. That's that's really scary, And, and these things can get lost along the way as to where it came from. Absolutely or right. Or someone could be sneaky and know that their food and produce and milk and fish would not be purchased and say it was from somewhere else and sell it. Uh-huh. So we never know what we're really eating. You've got a devious mind. Scar- uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm just very weary. <laughs> Aware, very aware, I should say. Yes, I'm the weary one. <laughs> I'm, no, I meant to say I'm very wary. That's the word I meant to say. See, I, I don't say the right word either. <laughs> a nuclear power plant meltdown is usually less damaging than a nuclear than a nuclear blast, as you can imagine, as radiation just doesn't make it as high up in the sky as a mushroom cloud from an atomic bomb. The worst effects will be felt by those people in the area of the reactors. Lighter particles like radioactive iodine will indeed travel farther, and they're the main concern for people that are far from the actual explosion or meltdown. The level of exposure depends on the distance the radioactive particles have to travel from the meltdown site as well as the time it took for the radiation to actually arrive. And now finally, let's talk about radiation sickness. The medical effects of radiation are collectively known as radiation sickness or acute radiation syndrome, ARS. A certain amount of radiation exposure is tolerable over time, but your goal as medic is to shelter your group so that they receive as small a dose as they possibly can. To accomplish this goal, we have to clarify what the different terms for measuring the quantities of radiation mean. Scientists use a variety of confusing terms such as RADs, REMs, Sieverts, Becquerels, Grays, Curies, 
to describe radiation amounts, and this can get pretty complicated. Different terms are used when describing the amount of radiation that's being given off, the amount of radiation that's being absorbed, and the chance or the chance that a living thing will suffer ill effects from the exposure. Becquerel's and Curie's, these terms describe the amount of radiation that, say, a hunk of uranium will give off into the environment. That's named after scientists who were the first to work with and die from radioactivity. Yeah, I was going to say. That's right. RADS is the amount of radiation in the environment that is actually absorbed by a living thing. Some use the term gray. Then there's REMS and sieverts, the measurement of the risks of health damage from the amount of radiation absorbed. For today, we're going to make it simple, and we're going to use RADS. RADS, as I said, measures the amount of radiation transferred to some mass of material, mass of material like you, perhaps, and me. An acute radiation dose, one that's received over a short period of time, is the most damaging. A list of the effects on humans corresponding to the amount of radiation absorbed, that can be easily found. We're going to talk a little bit about that now. For comparison, I want you to assume that you absorb about 0.6 rads per year from natural or household sources. Let's say you're exposed to about 30 to 70 rads. That's a lot more than what you would be exposed to normally, but you'd only get probably a mild headache or nausea, and that would occur within several hours of exposure. In this case, you still would expect, despite this kind of exposure, a full recovery on the part of the patient. If your patient was exposed to 70 to 150 rads, that person will have nausea and vomiting. That happens in about a third of patients, as well as headaches. And of course, if, you have, if that person has wounds as well, wound healing would be decreased and there's an increased susceptibility to infection. You still can expect eventually a full recovery. And even that's even as high as 150 rads. Let's say 150 to 300 rads, now you've got some problems. Moderate nausea and vomiting, occurs in a majority of patients, fatigue, weakness in half at least, infection, bleeding, spontaneous bleeding from orifices may occur due to a weakened immune system. Medical care will be required for almost everybody, especially those with burns or wounds. Occasionally, there'll be deaths at the higher end of exposure, 300 rads. That's a lot of radiation exposure. You might see some deaths. Then 300 to 500 rads, here we've got real problems. Moderate to severe nausea and vomiting, fatigue, weakness in almost everyone, diarrheal stools, dehydration, loss of appetite, skin breakdown, infection, all of these will be very common. Hair loss visible in most over time. At 500 rads, at least 50% of these people are going to die. And over 500 rads, well, these people are going to be bleeding spontaneously from various orifices. They'll have fever, stomach, intestinal ulcers, bloody diarrhea, dehydration, low blood pressure, infections, hair loss. Almost everybody's going to get this and death rates will begin to approach 100%. All of the effects related to exposure may not happen at the same time and they're not immediate in most cases, as Amy mentioned. Hair loss, for example, may take a good two weeks to appear. Deaths often occur weeks after exposure and it's not a good way to go. Your goal as medic is to prevent exposures over say let's say 100 rads. There are devices called dosimeters. They're useful to gauge radiation absorbed and they're widely available for purchase by the way. You can find them everywhere. This item helps predict the likelihood of developing radiation sickness. There are three basic ways of decreasing the total dose of radiation your people wind up getting. One, limit time spent out in the open. Radiation damage is dependent on the length of exposure. So leave areas where high levels are detected and no adequate shelter is available. 
the activity of radiation particles, interestingly enough, decreases pretty rapidly over time. After 24 hours, levels usually drop to about a tenth of their previous value or less. Which is pretty shocking. So time. Yeah, time. Two, time and distance. Distance, go, right. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Increase the distance from the radiation source. Radiation disperses over distance, and the effects will be decreased in proportion. In nuclear reactor meltdowns, common evacuation patterns include a complete 10-mile circle or a keyhole consisting of a two-mile circle and an additional three miles radiating from the direction of the prevailing winds. In both circumstances, adjustments are made in recommendations as needed. Three, you want to shield people to decrease radiation where they are. In many cases, people may have to shelter in place. Shielding will decrease exposure exponentially, so it's important to know how to construct a barrier between your people and the radiation source. Denser materials will give better protection. Shielding effectiveness is measured in terms of what we call having thickness, not having thickness, having thickness, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, right, half. Having thickness. This is, this is, right, this is the thickness of a particular material that will reduce gamma radiation, the most dangerous kind, by one half. When you multiply the halving thickness, you multiply your protection. For example, the halving thickness of concrete is 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. A barrier of 2.4 inches of concrete will drop exposure to gamma radiation by half. Doubling the thickness of the barrier drops it to one-fourth. Tripling it drops it to one-eighth. Ten halving thicknesses, if you keep extrapolating outward, drops the total radiation exposure to one one thousand twenty-fourth. So I, wait, I just want to be clear that I wasn't saying that the word is halving. I was just <laughs> that was a description halving of the having. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I got you. All right. To take an example, let's assume you're in a concrete bunker, two point four inches having thickness. Remember, is concrete. You would need it to be about twenty-four inches thick to drop your radiation exposure to one one thousand twenty-fourths of the outside environment. That's a pretty thick wall. That's pretty good. That is a thick wall. Wow. Lead would be a lot less. Okay. So instead, you'd need only a 0.6 inches, I think, something like that, to equal the same amount as you would get from 2.4 inches of concrete. Gotcha. So it just depends on what, what you decide are, to use. What your layers are, what materials you're using. Gotcha. Exactly. So earth, for example, you need about three feet of earth mm-hmm. to get the same effect. Okay. And uh, wood, I think, is uh, you would need about 12 inches of wood. So, I mean, each one of them has so their own having a, thickness. A deep cave right. would be a great would place. Be a, would be a great place. And gotcha. we, by the way, we talk about all the different having thicknesses. We list them in our fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. So how do you treat radiation sickness? Emergency treatment of radiation sickness involves dealing with the symptoms. Fluid may be required to reverse dehydration. Drugs like Zofran can eliminate nausea, for example, Antibiotics like amoxicillin, cephalexin, azithromycin may be helpful to treat infections. And in severely ill patients, stem cell transplants and multiple transfusions are indicated but will not be options, of course, in an austere setting. This hard reality underscores the importance of an adequate shelter as prevention and as a shield. There is, however, protection available against some of the long-term effects of radiation. Potassium iodide, known by the chemical symbol Ki, comes in 65 milligrams and 130 milligram tablets. It prevents radiation iodine from damaging the specific organ that it targets. In this case, it's the thyroid gland. Radiation iodine is the most common component in fallout, 
that is not in the immediate area of the nuclear event. And therefore, we see a lot of people developing thyroid cancer over time if they don't get potassium iodide into their system. Taking potassium iodide 30 minutes to 24 hours prior to an irradiation exposure will prevent the eventual epidemic of thyroid cancer over time, if no treatment is given. Radiation from the 1986 Chernobyl disaster has accounted, by the way, so far for about 6,000 cases of thyroid cancer, mostly in children and adolescents. Although there's a small amount of KI in ordinary iodized salt, not enough is present to confer any real protection by ingesting it. It would take about 250 teaspoons of household iodized salt to equal one potassium iodide tablet. Dosages recommended by the FDA are newborns up to one month of age, 16 milligrams. That's a quarter of a 65 milligram tablet. We have that in uh, ThyroSafe, I think, on your store. Mm -hmm. uh, or a quarter milliliter of solution in one single dose. The dose is the same whether nursing or not nursing. Uh, infants and toddlers, one month to three years of age, 32 milligrams. That's half of a 65 milligram tablet or a half milliliter of solution. Uh, the dose is the same, again, for nursing and non-nursing children. Uh, children between three years and 18 years of age, 65 milligrams. Children who are 150 pounds, however, or greater should take the full adult dose regardless of their age. Adults, pretty much 130 milligram tablet or 265 milligram tablets are good ideas. Even if, even if you're breastfeeding, you should take these, but do not use them in pregnancy. People that are adults or older folks, lowest priority, usually you'll expect kids to be affected by this the most. So give them high priority in terms of getting the medicines. You can expect a single dose to give protection from radiation for 24 hours. That may be all that's necessary as the radiation level drops. Multiple doses may be necessary for repeated exposures over several days, but not safe in newborns. An example of the scenario would be an ongoing nuclear reactor meltdown. Each packet of pills usually has a 10-day supply, but repeated doses may lead to stomach upset, allergic reactions, other problems, so use it for only the amount of time you need it. For pets, consider a dose of 65 milligrams. For large dogs, for example, 32 milligrams for small dogs and cats. Although KI... Potassium iodide is non-prescription. Don't depend on supplies of the drug to be available after a nuclear event. Even the federal government will have little KI in reserve to give to the general population. In the Fukushima power plant meltdown in 2011, there was little or no potassium iodide to be found anywhere for purchase. If you have a limited supply, it's important to know that children are the most likely to develop cancer after an exposure. Treat them first. If you find yourself without any KI, consider 2% tincture of iodine solution, brand name Betadine. Paint 8 milliliters of Betadine on the abdomen or forearm 2 to 12 hours prior to a radiation exposure and reapply daily for repeated exposures. Enough should be absorbed through the skin to offer some protection against radioactive iodine and fallout. You would apply 4 milliliters on children 3 and older, but under 150 pounds, 70 to 70 kilograms approximately. Use 2 milliliters for toddlers, 1 milliliter for infants. This strategy should also work for animals. If you don't have a way to measure, remember that a standard teaspoon is about five milliliters. Be aware that adverse reactions may occur if you take medications such as diuretics or lithium. It's also important to note that you cannot drink tincture of iodine, that's betadine. It is poisonous if ingested. Right. Studies have suggested that the supplement N-acetylcysteine prevents gamma radiation-induced toxicity in animals. More research is needed, however, to determine specific doses and protective therapies in humans to know really what you need to take. 
Well, that's all the time we have for today. Be sure to subscribe to the website at doomandbloom.net. We'll be doing giveaways over the coming year to celebrate our brand new fourth edition. Don't forget, you can find it on amazon.com and store.doomandbloom.net. Why not check out our quality medical kits while you're there? That's a shameless plug. This is Joe Alden, MD. And And Amy Alton. Nurse practitioner. Wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for all your support, and we'll see you next time.